Are you addicted to the buzz of work? The pace, the adrenaline, the excitement? The insidious thing about being addicted to work is that it's often praised by others, giving it a very different feel than being addicted, say, to cocaine or pornography. In today's episode, you will learn how we might become addicted to work. Is it the result of childhood trauma, for instance? And how do we actually know if work has become an addiction? And if it has, what can we do about it? My guest is Dr. Anna Lemke, professor of psychiatry at Stanford University. She's a world-leading expert on addiction, and she is also the author of the New York Times bestseller, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in an Age of Indulgence. Before we kick off, welcome to Enough, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mandy Leto. This is a leadership show that probes the shiny surface of success and explores the less talked about terrain underneath those impressive achievements. If you identify as an overachiever or perfectionist, and no achievement, however impressive, fills that void of not enoughness inside, this show is for you. I get it because I've been there too. In fact, I'm writing the book on it. I drop us right into the conversation where Dr. Lemke explains how we can get addicted to work. Ready? Let's dive in. I think probably the best place to start is to talk about what's called drug of choice, which is this idea that when we find the key that fits into our particular lock when it comes to compulsive overconsumption and addiction, and we turn that lock, we are all vulnerable to the problem of addiction. But we all have a slightly different lock and key, which is to say, you know, what what you may have the potential to get addicted to is not what I would have the potential to get addicted to and vice versa. So there's, we all have our kind of unique wiring, which is also influenced from our, you know, early childhood development, the environment that we live in, all of which comes together in making us who we are, and then also making us specifically vulnerable to certain types of addictions. Addiction broadly defined being the compulsive overconsumption of a substance or a behavior, including work and achievement, despite harm to self and or others. So when I look at people who struggle with work, what's commonly called workaholism, what, what we're talking about there is a particular type of brain that gets dopamine or reward from checking off a series of to-dos. So people who are basically worker bees, wired to be worker bees, and who get joy from getting stuff done and get a sense of meaning and purpose. That combined with the external accolades that we get from other people, society in general, when we achieve you know, certain units of work, those things together are the drug when it comes to, you know, workaholism, plus, of course, you know, money and other material rewards that come along often with, uh, with that kind of work success. So it's, it's not really, you know, to my mind, much of a mystery um, why it is that some people get addicted to work and achievement. Those are highly potent drugs. And I use that term drug very, very broadly. But what often happens is that we don't see that as an addiction because it's so socially rewarded and socially sanctioned. You know, we see somebody 
snorting cocaine or shooting up heroin. And we have sort of, you know, a, a deep innate revulsion to that behavior, seeing that as something that will bring us down. Whereas people who are addicted to work are, they're our modern day heroes, you know, people who are rich and famous and have power and influence. And I love Bruno Mars song, I want to be a millionaire. It just so captures that so well, like that young person's aspiration to get rich. So I just think it's a matter of our unique wiring and then an environment that incentivizes consumption of that particular substance or behavior. Work and achievement are, in Anna's words, potent drugs. I'm curious if work addiction is due to some form of early trauma. In the previous episode, Dr. David Yudis, ex-Disney exec, talked about his proving energy, having grown up, in his words, as a, quote, fat kid. In episode 55, Tatiana Polyakova, ex-banker, whose addiction to adrenaline meant her body took her down after many, many warnings. She was always worried if she was smart enough as a kid. And then there was me, the child of an alcoholic dad who was trying to achieve my way out of the chronic embarrassment of my father being constantly bombed. Dr. Lemke, is workaholism the result of childhood trauma? So it is a very modern trope that if we are suffering in some way in our lives, there must be some past trauma to explain or inform it. And it certainly is true that we are deeply shaped by those early childhood experiences. Our brains are more plastic than they'll ever be when we are children and adolescents. We're pruning back neurons we're not using, we're myelinating the neurons we are using. So those first two decades have a huge influence on who we become as adults. I'm not disputing that at all. But what I am pushing back against gently is this idea that suffering in our adult lives or really at any phase in our lives is directly traceable to an, an incident uh, that was psychologically or physically difficult or painful in some way. And the reason I'm pushing back on that is because although I think there is uh, some truth in some, in many instances, in some instances, I wouldn't want to quantify it. I also know uh, that you can have the perfect childhood, the perfect parents, the perfect set of friends. You can go to the perfect school. You can live in the perfect place and you will still suffer as a human. That will never go away. And your unique form of suffering uh, can take many guises, one of which may be addiction. Uh, and addiction in particular in the modern age is very easy to come by because we live in this drugified world where almost every human behavior has become more potently reinforcing, more accessible, more bountiful, more novel. And those factors together, you know, conspire to make us more vulnerable to the problem of addiction. We don't need another explanation beyond the fact that we live in an addictogenic world. We have motivation and reward pathways that can get hijacked by these addictive substances and behaviors, which with repeated use will actually change our brain chemistry and our brain wiring such that we can get stuck in this vortex of addiction, making it very difficult to come out of it. And if we spend too much time looking for a secondary explanation, you know, we can end up sort of chasing that without really focusing on changing the behaviors. Because 
really at the at the sort of inception of behavior change is behavior change, right? So it's actions before feelings, which is what we talk a lot about in recovery from addiction. You don't need to figure out, you know, what your childhood trauma was that explains your addiction right now. What you need to do right now is change your consumptive behaviors, get your brain back online, and then you can reflect on all of the aspects of your life that may be contributing to this problem, including early childhood, past traumas, but also the immediate environment that you live in now. So what I specifically reject is this notion that past trauma, even if it's true and present, is the primary influencer for current behaviors. I think just as important or possibly even more important is the immediate cues we are getting from the environment that we live in, the people that we're hanging out with, the activities that we engage in, the 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 creation, inception, perpetuation of the virtual world, which is essentially delivering digital dopamine 24-7. It's the early 2000s, and I'm working in my investment banking career. Work seeps into weekends, evenings. I volunteer to work on holidays. I rarely take vacations. My then marriage falls apart, and I find ways to keep working in that job with a small child as a single mom. Loved ones say, I should take it easy, that I look tired. But I take a peculiar type of pride in being able to push myself that hard. It feels validating, and I want more. I'm not addicted, I'm deeply committed. Um, right? I know now that I had become addicted to work, and I probably had been for all of my adult life. I didn't feel productive if I wasn't working. Holidays were the biggest challenge. I craved this buzz and adrenaline and knowing that I was making progress. But surely I was in control of this. I had worked like this pretty much all my life, so it felt normal. Dr. Lemke, are we actually in control in these situations and what's going on inside of our brains? Let's put our lab coats on, folks. It's very hard to see true cause and effect when we are chasing dopamine. We lose a sense of time. We lose a sense of why it is we initiated the substance or the behavior, whether it's opioids, cocaine, cannabis, alcohol, or pornography, shopping, workaholism, uh, gambling, gaming, you name it. When we're in that activity, it becomes so internally reinforcing because of what it does to our brains that we no longer can see the true impact of our consumption on our lives. Unless one of two things happens. We either take a break from that activity for long enough to get out of the vortex such that we can have the distance to look back and say, oh, wow, I so overvalued that substance or behavior that I was willing to sacrifice all of my life's resources toward it. And now with this distance, Uh, I can see that that's not really what I want to do. Uh, So in a very real way, when we are addicted, we lose autonomy. We, We don't have the sensation of losing autonomy. We have the sensation that we are choosing uh, what we consume, but really we we are not. And that's, I think, really a key piece. The other, the other thing beyond taking a break is that we can really honestly and genuinely uh, receive feedback from those who care about us, who are very often telling us, you seem unhappy, 
You seem unfulfilled. Do you really want to keep doing this? You always seem angry. You always seem annoyed or depressed or can't sleep or wanting a different life of some sort. So, but we're not very good at that. (laughs) No, I mean, I, I remember hearing that multiple times and it almost again felt like this misplaced pride of being able to stay in the game that other people would say, oh, I don't know how you do it. And that somehow got skewed into a compliment about the willingness to continue to push and pursue. And I'm wondering what does dope well like what's actually going on if we if we examine what's happening in the brain that causes that to happen this this nexting and this pushing through so this is really the key to understanding compulsive overconsumption and addiction is understanding what happens in our brain and how our brain changes as we repeatedly over days to weeks to months to years engage in a consumption of this reinforcing substance or behavior So uh, to understand this, it's first essential to realize that pleasure and pain are co-located in the brain, uh, meaning that the same parts of the brain that process pleasure also process pain, and they work like opposite sides of a balance. If you remember, if you imagine a beam on a central fulcrum, when the beam is at rest, it's level with the ground. When we experience pleasure, it tilts one way and pain tilts the opposite way. Kind of like a seesaw. Yep, Mm -hmm. like a seesaw. And there are several rules governing this balance, but the first and most important rule is that the balance wants to remain level, or what neuroscientists call homeostasis. And so with any deviation from a level balance, our brains will work very hard to restore neutrality. And the way that our brains do that is tilting an equal and opposite amount to whatever the initial stimulus was. So let me give you an example As I talk about in my book, I got addicted to romance novels. It was very reinforcing for me. I had thought I was immune to the problem of addiction, but but really it was just that I hadn't yet met my drug of choice. Uh, Getting a Kindle accelerated that phenomenon for me. I became a chain reader of romance novels. And so when I would read a romance novel, that would cause the release of dopamine, our reward neurotransmitter, in a specific part of my brain called the reward pathway and my balance would tilt slightly to the side of pleasure. But no sooner does that happen than our brain adapts to the increased level of dopamine firing above baseline tonic levels by down-regulating dopamine transmission, not just back to baseline, but below baseline into a dopamine deficit state. And I like to imagine that as these little neuroadaptation gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again, but they like it on the balance, so they stay on until it's tilted an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. That's the come down, the hangover, the after effect. That moment of wanting to read one more chapter in my romance novel, eat one more piece of chocolate, have one more glass of wine, stay do one more email, right, if it's related to work. Now, if I resist that urge uh, and just wait a matter of moments, hours, maybe in some cases days if people have been using repeatedly, Then the gremlins hop off, homeostasis is restored, and I kind of go on with something else. But of course, the natural urge for all living organisms is to restore homeostasis. So if I'm tilted to the side of pain and I have easy access to my more of my drug, right, then I am very vulnerable to doing that thing again, reading another chapter, reading another book, having more chocolate, drinking more wine. And what happens when we do that is that those gremlins start to accumulate. And over many days, weeks, months, we get 
enough gremlins on the panes that had bounced to fill this whole room. And they're essentially camped out there, tents and barbecues in tow. When that happens, we have entered addicted brain. We've changed our hedonic or joy set point. Now we're walking around with a pleasure pain balance that's chronically tilted to the side of pain. Now we need to keep using our drug not to get joy or relax or go to sleep or feel good, but just to level the balance and feel normal. And when we're not using, we're walking around with the balance tilted to the side of pain, experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, which are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, and craving. And what is craving? It's the narrowing of my attention on this one substance or behavior and obsessional preoccupation that takes up a lot of my mental real estate, garners a lot of my creative resources, and drives me to single-mindedly pursue that substance or behavior again and again and again in a desperate attempt to restore homeostasis. So this is what we talk about when we talk about the hijacked brain or the loss of autonomy that people experience when they're in that compulsive compulsive vortex, right? It feels like I'm using out of my choice to feel better. And of course, when I do use, briefly, I do feel better because I restore homeostasis. But the long-term effect is to contribute to this dopamine deficit state, which has me really feeling very bad indeed. As a coach, I often see situations where someone wants to leave a job that's depleting them. They know they can't maintain this pace and they want out. And yet, stopping or even slowing down can feel disorientating and downright terrifying. What would I do with myself? I'd be climbing the walls in a couple of weeks. Who am I without my title? So instead of leaving, they might go for a promotion or take a bigger job at another firm. It's so hard to resist the seductive promise of more seniority, more intensity, more responsibility, more status, because this time for absolutely sure, it's going to be it, right? Then I'll arrive. Often, it's not. And then there's this vitriolic inner dialogue that kicks off. All of this makes sense when you remember that Dr. Lemke said that work and achieving are potent drugs. Even if you don't want to use that drug of choice anymore and you want to slow down, it's not necessarily easy or straightforward. Anna is going to tell us how we can do that and hint, spoiler alert, a period of ceasing use of the drug is required, but more on that shortly. I drop us back into the conversation where Anna and I are discussing that vitriolic inner voice, our inner critic. My most vocal inner critic, I've lovingly named her Judgy Janet. And Judgy Janet, she brings friends. And it's it's really all about you're lazy, you're weak. And that came up so vocally, definitely when I was going through the burnout. And I, I couldn't even wash my own hair at that stage so this sense that my worth as a human being was dissipating daily with my non-doing. And it's interesting that you were talking about this, this period of about two weeks. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about how long it took, but it was definitely very, all of that chorus of inner critics. I don't think there's any scientific research around this, but from your experience in working for 25 years, with patients as well, this phenomena of this inner voice, is that generally something that gets super vocal in the immediate 
ceasing of using whatever the drug of choice is? Oh, absolutely. And it manifests in very predictable ways. So first, let me go back a second and just say your description of your experience and what you've seen in your clients can directly analogize to people who get addicted to drugs and alcohol, where over time, they actually hate their drug. They will tell you it gives me no pleasure at all. And yet they can't stop using. They continue to want. It's what what the neuroscientists often refer to as wanting but not liking. The ways in which this initial spike in dopamine results in this chronic dopamine deficit state that then hijacks the motivation to pursue something that people don't even want to pursue anymore but can't stop pursuing. And that, that, that exact same thing, as well as the phenomenon of tolerance, needing more of the drug over time in more potent forms, we see that, you know, in sex and pornography addiction, people starting out with vanilla toast pornography and finding themselves, you know, two years later looking at deviant pornography, you know, engaging escorts, uh, things that they never imagined. It's, it's, you know, exactly the same with, with drugs and alcohol. People starting out, you know, with an Oxycontin and ended, ending up, you know, shooting up black tar heroin, something they said they would never do or could never imagine. So it's a very classic progression. And then, of course, when people try to stop, if you imagine, again, that pleasure-pain balance and all those gremlins that we've accumulated on the pain side of the balance, when we take off the weight of on the pleasure side, whatever that may be, our substance or our behavior, of course, that balance is going to slam immediately to the side of pain because it takes a while for the gremlins to get the memo that there's no more incoming drug and that it's okay for them to get off the pleasure pain balance and to allow homeostasis to go back to baseline. And in that interim, we experience extreme withdrawal. And of course, many drugs and even behaviors have physical withdrawal symptoms. Not many people appreciate that. Behaviors also can have physical withdrawal symptoms, but all substances and behaviors have psychological withdrawal symptoms. I mentioned them before, but I think it's worth mentioning again, anxiety, irritability, insomnia, dysphoria, and craving. And of course, craving manifests in words as narratives. And it takes many, many forms from you know, self-loathing, a shame, I'm a loser, I'm no good, which in and of itself can drive reuse just to shut down the voices, right? But it also takes the form of really ingenious rationalizations for why it's okay to start using again, even though I promised myself I wouldn't, I promised other people I wouldn't, my life really sucks when I'm doing that substance or behavior, but maybe I was wrong about that. I could just go back to using in more moderation or I could use in a different way or at a different time. So all kinds of rationalizations of why, or I'm so traumatized, you know, I've been so harmed, I'm such a victim. So really it's justified because my life is so much harder than other people's lives you know, all kinds of ways that the brain really quite deviously tricks us uh, into re-engaging with our substance or behavior of choice. One thing that I realized, and it's easiest for me to talk about my own journey uh, mm -hmm. rather than that of any clients, was when when I was recovering from burnout and I, I had to take some time off of work, and then I got all this the support from nutritional therapy and rebuilding my adrenal glands and nervous system reset and all of that. 
And my, my functional medicine person said, the rest is an inside job. I've taken you, <laughs> I've taken you to this part of the mountain and the rest of the climb, you'll yeah. need, you'll need a different toolkit and different guides. Yeah. And it was all about getting out of my head and into my body and harnessing the mm -hmm. wisdom of the body and, and realizing that mm -hmm. there was more to life than work and that it wasn't a case right. of I do, therefore I am. And it was interesting because what I noticed happening was this compulsion to do and to be good at and to perfect became transferred into when I did my mindfulness meditation course. I didn't just do mm -hmm. it once, mm -hmm. Anna. I did it twice. Mm -hmm. And I wanted no, you were to gonna be the A plus you're gonna be the A plus <laughs> mindfulness student. And I bought all the lotus cushions and the candles and the apps. Mm -hmm. And I thought I'm mm -hmm. gonna do it multiple times a day because that will mm -hmm. then I can hack my healing and get back to the way that I mm -hmm. used to be. Mm -hmm. And it was the same thing, whether I got prescribed by my then coach to go to five rhythms dancing, which is a dance mm -hmm. with no moves. You make them up mm -hmm. as you go. But <laughs> I bought the DVDs and I pre-learned the moves so that I wouldn't oh, I have to it. feel the That's pain great. of see yeah. seeming like I didn't know what I was doing and to put right. myself in a circumstance where I wasn't already good at the thing. So right. it was super interesting right. for me to, mm -hmm. I, I started to have enough of the meditation practice and the mindfulness practice to be able to pull into my observer self and mm -hmm. with some degree of levity and compassion, be able yeah. to look at myself and think, you see what's actually happening here? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I remember my then coach saying to me something about forgiving myself. Yeah. And I remember just doing a double take and staring at her mouth agape and thinking, <laughs> what? As if uh -huh. I hadn't heard her properly. So two yeah. things to to jump into here, if there's anything that's coming up for you, is the transferring of the behavior onto something else, which I yes. know from your book, you say, well, it's better mm -hmm. to be addicted to mindfulness or to <laughs> than it is to overworking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then the, the other thing about like little by little, the forgiveness and the self-compassion as ways mm. of starting to change one's relationship with right what the the drug of choice or the workaholism or the overgiving overworking contorting oneself to be whoever they need to be in those sorts of circumstances so i suppose by way of introduction my question there is can we get out of this is i mean i know we can't cure it but mm -hmm. what have mm -hmm. you seen that actually works is it about being in relation to it differently and forgiving oneself mm -hmm. and compassion or what do you see that actually works in these kind of situations with workaholics? To begin with, I think there are very practical steps and I talk about them in the book that, that people can take um, in terms of abstaining from their drug of choice for long enough to reset reward pathways, intentionally doing things that are difficult or painful in order to get the body to start to upregulate feel good neurotransmitters, including dopamine, unless we're addicted to pain, you know, unless we happen to be in that kind of uh, masochist category, which many workaholics can be masochists and sadists, in which case it's abstaining from that behavior and being kinder to ourselves and allowing ourselves the grace to, you know, relax or not work or waste time or uh, do all the things that we normally don't allow ourselves to do. So what we're trying in all of that is to find a kind of supple, middle 
balance. Uh, you know, again, I, I asked you to imagine like a sort of a seesaw, a beam on a central fulcrum, but an even better metaphor is in fact a beam that we are balancing a top that is on a ball. And so therefore it requires constant small, re once we've learned to balance, right? We're not falling off. We've learned to balance. It's not like you get to just stand there. You have to, on this ball, make constant minor readjustments all the time in order to So maintain. this sounds like psychological Pilates in a way. <laughs> yes. Yes. Not bad. Yes. Psychological. That's, that's right. Uh, which, which is to say that it's a dynamic process, especially when we live in this dopamine saturated world where we're constantly being invited to consume, you know, titillated, reminded of how much better our lives could be if only we bought X or ate Y. So it's a never ending kind of a process. But I also think, um, you know, as you talk about here, it is that work that I think we all have to do at some point in our lives where we allow ourselves to be acceptable just as we are separate from anything that we are doing or separate from any kind of identity or image that we have in the world. We get kind of deeply okay with ourselves and and you know, we essentially connect with that ground of our being. I, I personally think that this is really a spiritual process, however you define that, that, you know, in a way we deeply connect with ourselves. And in another really important way, we transcend ourselves and sort of recapture our humility in the face of what we can and cannot control, recognizing that there are more things that we cannot control than can control. And so a sort of sense of being steeped in that place and feeling that we are able to be loved and love others independent, completely independent from these sort of material things in the world. I agree with Dr. Lemke that recovery is a spiritual process. It's an inside job, as one of my then coaches said while I was recovering from burnout. Self-compassion is a huge part of it, and so is self-forgiveness. It's about learning to accept our imperfect selves as we are, and to be open to believing that we're acceptable and lovable just like this. Simple, but not easy. There can also be this grief that's part of the recovery. For me, anyway, there was grief around the sunk cost of all those years of efforting and striving and pushing, pushing boulders up hills like Sisyphus, needing to do it again and again and again because it never felt enough. Always back to the drawing board. And then when I did quit, there was grief that I'd probably quit just before I made it. If I would have just persisted a bit longer, I would have arrived. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was also grief on how much of my life I had missed. The opportunities for fun and intimacy and connection and rest and the joy of being alive in this moment because I was too busy trying to get somewhere better. There was also grief around how I'd abused my physical body and my mental health, refusing to believe that I had any limits until my body had to take me down. I think back to those who warned me, but I never listened. So Anna, can we ever get through to somebody that we're worried about? You know, I think you were obliquely referring to sort of Nietzsche's Ubermensch, you know, this idea that 
that we, you know, will to power and we can just will ourselves to do whatever we want without any regard for our own bodies or other people or the environment or really what kind of impact we're truly having, having on the world. What I am so struck by in modern life is the, the first, the fact that we have, we do have incredible opportunity and freedom unprecedented really in human history. And yet we are all putting ourselves in these little cages. Um, and we do that through these compulsive, uh, consumptive uh, activities and behaviors. We whittle our worlds down to these tiny little cages that we're trapped in. And then we feel trapped, but we have no idea how to get out, even though we made the cages ourselves. And so, you know, how do you convince somebody to just open the door because it's not locked? You know, you made the cage, nobody's locked it. You, you've put yourself in there, but you can open that door and you can walk out and you can be free. And the other thing that you were, you know, you used the reference to Sisyphus and how, you know, he is damned to Hades to eternally roll this ball up a ramp or up a hill only to have it fall back down again. And then he's damned to do that again and again for eternity. So maybe salvation for Sisyphus is not to stop pushing that boulder up the hill, but instead to marvel at the movement of the boulder as it goes up the hill, to marvel at how gravity pulls it down again, the angle at which it goes, the speed, the way that the light is falling on the boulder at certain times in the day, the joy of having the opportunity to have something to do day after day and to delight in the simple pleasures of doing that activity. And I, I bring that in because I, I want to emphasize that there are ways that we can get out of our self-created cages without necessarily stopping the work that we do, but rather reorienting in, in a completely different way on the work that we do and seeing the work as the means and not the ends and being finely attuned to the experience of doing the work on a daily basis in a way that is full of integrity and consistent with our values and making small micro differences, especially when it comes to human to human encounters. And through that, we can have tremendous meaning. We can have an impact on, on the world that, you know, like the butterfly effect, we may never know, but we can be confident that it is good, that it is deeply and in and of itself good because it comes from a place of thoughtful, caring, compassion, integrity, these kinds of things. Uh, so, you know, Sisyphus with a different mindset could be a very happy man. I mean, obviously when it comes to genuine addiction and people are really caught in that dopamine cycle, you know, what I invite them to do is to do an experiment of abstaining from that substance or behavior for four weeks. Four weeks is an amount of time that people can wrap their heads around. If they protest that that's too long, I say, well, in the grand scheme of your life, you know, how long really is four weeks? Even for a 20-year-old, that's not very long. And I so I do think that thinking of life as an experiment and the best way that we can understand how an organic system works is to change one variable in that system. And so inviting people to make those small changes so that they can see the impact and they have to make the change for long enough to really change the brain also. And then they have the ability to decide for themselves whether they want to continue to live as they were or to try to push further into this slightly different way of being to lean into something 
new and different for them. And once they've gathered those data for themselves, we, you and I, we're no longer in the position of persuading them. They have their own data that they can reflect on. And then that motivates them to make, make a change. And that could look like, as you said, having a pause that could look like a sabbatical that could also look like I had one guest talking about MVP, minimum viable productivity yeah. <laughs> for, for a time right. for those people who aren't in a position to take a pause right. from work, but mm-hmm. to recalibrate what it would look like to collect data points and to realize, I think just as a quick sidebar here, one of the things that often feels like a huge fear for many of these overachievers who I support is there's this fear of ordinariness and this fear of mediocrity. There's this mm-hmm. pressure to constantly overshoot everything that that will then bestow some sense of specialness. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. like a, a a relief. Now I can take a breath mm-hmm. and then I have to right. do now for my next trick, I have to do something else. Right. But there's this yeah. real fear of mm-hmm. the ordinary and ordinary things like sunsets and a croissant with a beautiful cup of coffee. It, it's all lost. So I love what Being you said about with, yeah. the you know, the Sisyphus effect in in the new, in the new sense of the word to recalibrate oneself for the beauty of ordinary things and to not see it as something to be feared or that feels boring. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, so much of what happens in this process of addiction to achievement or workaholism is identity creation, right? So we're constantly trying to manage our environment to uh, create a a narrative or a certain sense of self. And then once we've created that edifice or that cage, as I often refer to it, it requires quite a bit of maintenance on our part because, you know, it is an illusion. And if we don't continue to, you know, add bricks and mortar or whatever it is, you know, it's, it's, it's going to disintegrate and then we'll be sort of left standing there naked and afraid. So I think to make people realize that um, they are more than their narrative and that what they perceive as a very attractive identity in the world actually may not be, um, and that they really need to consider the possibility that there is another better way of living. And this is true, again, with people addicted to drugs and alcohol. They feel that their only choices are to continue with the drug or to be in a state of withdrawal and interminable misery. So given those two choices, who wouldn't continue to use their drug? So what I need to do is to make them realize there's a third option out there, which involves giving up your drug and living your life in a very different way in a way that's really very oriented on deep meaning and purpose. And and I think, you know, in a a kind of a deeply spiritual way, a deeply interpersonal, conscious, empathic way that's not tied to material goods, but is tied to the things that are so precious in life, but essentially can't be bought. So this is the shift that, that we need to encourage. But it's hard because, again, we live in this culture where people really are encouraged to kind of narcissistically pursue this kind of, these sort of material gains and and badges of achievement. So it's, it's swimming upstream for sure. 
two final questions. I'm curious if your inner critic has a name. I have never thought of naming my inner critic, but now <laughs> I, you, you've now, I might have to do that. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to do that. In fact, I'm going to give it some thought. I'm going to name my inner critic. <laughs> Judgy Janet is, uh, yeah. yes. Um, yes. I'm curious what you're uh, going to yeah. come maybe up with. Maybe mine can be Judgy Janet too. That works for me. <laughs> it helps me to separate from, yeah, it's, from it's that a good point. In, in the whole mm-hmm. process that when I feel myself being drawn to overwork, overgive and overdo right. again, if I really get quiet and feel the feeling under all the voices, the feeling is one of constriction. It's one of fear. And yeah. Janet is like, really? She has her bony death grip and you must do this. There's right. a sense of urgency. So there's a feeling that comes with judgy Janet. So even mm-hmm. if she's not vocal, if she's, if mm-hmm. she's, if she's gone quiet, I can start to sense the, the oh, this is JJ. This is JJ at work right. here pulling right. my strings. Right. And I think it's also important to recognize that Judgy Janet judges us, but also judges other people. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes. And in many ways, that that judgment of others is really a cover for our own shame. And just as our judgment of ourselves is a cover for our own fears. So tapping into our shame and fears is very instructive. Mm. And I ask every guest at the end of the podcast episode to leave a brick of wisdom. So something that may have jiggled loose or an insight that you've had, or now that you know how this conversation has gone, what would you leave for somebody who's listening, who might exactly be in this place of understanding that this can't go on, but they don't quite know Mm. what to do? What would you leave with them? Mm -hmm. Uh, What I would want to say that I think we haven't maybe, I haven't already, or we haven't already specifically said is that, you know, addiction really is isolation. And the antithesis of addiction of any sort is connection with other human beings. And when we look back at a life well-lived, of course, we would all, I think the vast majority of us agree that we would want to have lived a life of deep and loving human connections. And we can't do that if we're in our addiction, because by definition, when we're in our addiction, we're using our substance or behavior to meet those deeper needs. They become a kind of a false worship uh, or a, you know, a, a counterfeit kind of connection. So to give up our drug of choice is to move toward connection, which is always the right direction. Thank you. That was really you're, moving and beautiful. Yeah. Is there anything that you wish I would have asked you, but didn't? No, you were great. You're so funny and articulate, and I really enjoyed talking to Mm. you. There is a lot to digest in this episode. Thank you so much, Dr. Lemke, for sharing your wisdom with us. I'm loving her suggestion of recalibrating one's relationship to work, thinking of it as an opportunity to create meaning and human connection and to live and work based on one's values. Anna's not on social media, but you can find her excellent book, Dopamine Nation, for more of her insights. Really worth a read. Highly recommended. If you're enjoying the show, please go ahead and hit the follow button before you leave today, which not only helps me, it means that you never miss an episode. As ever, thank you so much for being here. I'm glad you're a listener. I'm glad you're learning and walking this journey with me. Let's do this all again in two weeks.